Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Proverbs chapter 20, verse 7. The righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. As Christians, we know that being righteous doesn't just happen. We are all sinners, and we all have a fallen nature, which is why we need Christ in the first place. By nature, we are prone towards sin, which is why verse 6, the immediately preceding verse, ends with the question, who can find a faithful man? This proverb here is in part an answer to that question. It is an observation and a description of some of the properties of faithful men. First, the righteous man walks in his integrity. The Hebrew word for integrity is tone, and it means perfection, blamelessness, integrity, and innocence. The righteous man's ways are pure. He is honest and truthful. He is not guilty or shady. And notice how I said his ways are pure. This is because he walks in his integrity. It is work, but it is his way of going forward. The way he walks and talks. He is active in the business of guarding his heart, his mind, his tongue, and his actions. But his work does not go unrewarded. He is blessed by his wisdom. He will be able to stand through the difficult times and weather the storms of life because he has learned to trust in God. Psalm 1 says, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. And the Lord knows the way of the righteous. So the righteous man will be prosperous. But also, as this proverb teaches, his children are blessed after him. This is because children learn how to walk from their parents. They learn how to walk by teaching, by watching their dads and moms walk through life. This is a great hope for the faithful. But the righteous and the faithful all know that it is only by grace that they may be saved. But in that grace, they may have confidence in the proverb. The righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. What a delightful proverb, especially for Father's Day. Now it's time for us to confess our sins. If you're willing and able, wisely in the light of God's sovereignty. In chapter 10, he commanded us to be wise in our reactions, our work, and our words. 
Last week in the first half of chapter 11, he told us to be generous, to be kind and giving, to trust in God for the return. And today in the second half of chapter 11, he will command us to be joyful, to rejoice and to celebrate our youth and the life that God gives us. And then in the beginning of, verse, of chapter 12, he will command us to be godly, to remember our God. And back at the very beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher told us that the world is full of cycles, and they are endless, making life vain. Ecclesiastes 1, verses 2 to 11. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away, and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises, and the sun goes down and hastens to its place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, or the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, See, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. From there, the preacher went on to tell us how there is no profit or satisfaction in life apart from God. Because God is sovereign, and He gives gifts and the power to enjoy them. Today, Solomon returns to the endless repetitions and the cycles of life. But he doesn't leave us in despair and emptiness. Instead, he commands us to do two things. First, to rejoice. And second, to remember. So rejoice in youth, but remember your mortality. Chapter 11, verses 7 through 10. To rejoice, we are commanded because of the good that we have and the good that our Creator is. He is loving and kind and merciful. We have much to rejoice about. Chapter 11, verse 7. Truly the light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. So Solomon starts us out in this section with a proclamation that life is good. Light is a metaphor for life. And, the, and life is sweet. It is pleasant for our eyes to behold the sun. It's a sad thing when you lose your eyesight. Light is sweet, and God has given us many beautiful things to behold. So, but immediately after this, this exhortation or this proclamation that life is good, we're given a command to keep our eyes open. Life is good, but it is not simple. It is not a cakewalk. It is not easy. Life is beautiful, but it is filled with danger. Suffering and death are a part and parcel of life. Verse 8. But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. 
All that is coming is vanity. In one sense, this verse brings us right back to the seeming despair of chapter 1. Even if a man lives a long life full of joy, he's commanded to remember that death looms over him. Suffering is just around the corner, and it will not be pleasant, nor brief. He is commanded here to remember that the days of darkness will be many, and all that is coming is vanity. Wow, what has happened to Solomon's injunctions to seize life, rejoice, and enjoy? All that, those commands that Solomon's even giving us pointedly through the book, all the way through, rejoice and enjoy. Has Solomon just given up? By no means. Have no fear. His point here is that life is a gift. And it is to be rejoiced in. But it is not a shallow rejoicing. It's not a shallow joy. We're not to put blinders on and rejoice because I don't want to think about what's happening in the future. I don't want to think about death. I don't want to think about sin. I don't want to think about consequences and hard things in this world. I just want to think about sunshine and lollipops and buttercups and meadows with sunshine. That's not the kind of joy that Solomon's proclaiming. We must be wise in our joy. Knowing that it is only by God's grace that we can enjoy life. And there is suffering that all of us must pass through. All that is coming is vanity, is what he says. But that's not a meaningless or empty or voidness. An emptiness. That's actually a comfort. His point is that the suffering that we will experience is temporary. He says, if a man lives a long life and rejoices in them all, help, you must remember that darkness is coming. Suffering is part of life. But all that is coming is vanity. It's passing. It's mist. We pass through the suffering. Jesus went through the cross for the joy that was set before him. There's, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. There's blessing on the, on the far side of the suffering. The suffering that we experience is temporary. It's a mist that we must pass through before we can see God face to face. And our faith then becomes sight. Verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. Here the point is made clear. He's just said, remember that there's hard times coming. But his command immediately following that is rejoice. Rejoice in your youth. If we will live wisely under the sun, we are commanded to rejoice in our youth and our health. Let our hearts cheer us to give ourselves to the desires God places in our hearts and the opportunities he places in our paths. We are to seize life. This is what John Piper would call Christian hedonism. God wants us to embrace life and embrace it wholeheartedly. Throw yourself into it. We are supposed to rejoice and enjoy it. 
When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he gave them a whole world that was filled with yeses. Say, eat this tree and eat that tree and eat that plant and herb. Name that animal. Enjoy it. Live it. Live life here. There's only one no. And we are supposed to find the good things that God had made, made and use them for his glory and for our blessing. It's our job. That's what having, having dominion on the earth is, is, is to, to tame the wildness. Use it for your blessing. Enjoy it. God gave it to you. Be thankful. That said, there is a reminder here. It's not simple, just go out and enjoy life. You must, we must still remember our mortality. Know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. And in verse 10, he tells us of the passing nature of childhood and youth. Therefore, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh. For childhood and youth are vanity. This is not a detraction from the joy he has just commanded. Remove sorrow from your heart is what he says. He's he's reiterating reiterating this command to rejoice. Remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh. This is wisdom. He's not saying, okay, now you can't be that joyful because God's going to judge you. What he's saying is, no, be joyful, but be pure. Be holy. Put away evil from your flesh because God will judge you. Childhood and youth pass away. Solomon here is giving us wisdom in how we are to rejoice in our youth and let our hearts cheer us. In order to remove sorrow from our heart, we must put away evil from our flesh. So according to Ecclesiastes, a wise young man is full of life, full of joy, and fully aware that God is driving the ship. Thus he keeps himself pure and clean and holy. He's a righteous man, a man of integrity. So Solomon has commanded us to rejoice in our youth. And that joy is to be a deep joy, a wise joy, appreciative and aware of the coming days of difficulty. But now in chapter 12, he will command us to remember and to be thankful because it all comes from someone. We have a creator and it is right and fitting that we give honor where honor is due. And likewise, thanks and respect. Moreover, because we're limited and finite, there is a statute of limitations on our remembering. We cannot afford to put it off. We can't just wait till tomorrow before we remember our Creator. We're commanded to remember our Creator while we still can. While we still can. While there's yet breath in our lungs. And chapter 12, verses 1 to 7, is poetry. It's about the demise and death of a man. But there's some some technical considerations here. Verses 1 and 7 are introduction and conclusion, and they speak straightforwardly. There's no interpretation difficulties there. But the verses in between are a little more metaphor. So let's start with verse 1. Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come, and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. 
that straightforward. Remember him now before it's too late. And then in verse 2 we have the first metaphor. It's a metaphor of light. This is a reference to failing eyesight, while the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are not darkened. Verse 2, while the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened, and the clouds do not return after the rain. The second half of the verse, the clouds not returning after the rain, refers to the incessant nature of pain in old age. We don't heal like we used to when we get old. We're full of aches and pains. And actually, there's a, an additional negative in, in my translation. The, the, the Hebrew actually says, it's positive. It's when the clouds return after the rain. And the poetry here is, in, in, in life, what we normally expect is, is a storm builds up. There's, there's rain, but after the storm, there's, there's peace. There's rest. Time heals. But as we get old and as our bodies get feeble and weak... We go from one ache and pain to the next. Time does not heal, it kills. Then the metaphor switches to a failing house, a failing estate. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few and those that look through the windows grow dim. The keepers of the house are the hands and the arms and they grow weak and they tremble. The strong men are the legs, and they bow down. And the grinders are the teeth, and those who look through the windows are the eyes. They grow dim. Verse 4, when the doors are shut in the streets, and the sound of grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of music are brought low. The doors which are shut in the streets are the lips. Appetite fails as you get older. You no longer enjoy your food. You no longer taste it as well. Next, the notorious light sleep of old age. We raise up, rise up at the sound of a bird. And then, you can't sleep, but you can't enjoy the singing either. All the daughters of music are brought low. You, don't, you no longer enjoy the sound. You can't hear as well. The loss of hearing. In verse 5, the frailty of the aged makes them fear what used to be everyday things. Also, they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way. When the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails. For man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. The almond tree blossom is a reference to white hair and the grasshopper as a burden, is probably talking about the way that even the littlest things become tiresome and too much, and desire fails. Then the man dies and the mourners go about the streets. And finally, in verse 6, we are commanded yet again to remember our Creator before it really is too late. Each of the metaphors in this verse are about dying. Remember your Creator before the silver cord is loosed, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the well. And in verse 7, as I said before, the metaphor stops, and Solomon says it plain. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. So this is poetry, and it's meant 
to be read as a unit and whole. It's meant to be felt. The, the despair, the sadness, the, the loss that we experience in dying and in death is evident. And it's part of life. In, on this earth is part of what we experience. Every person dies. But the essence of this poem, in all of its many facets, is really quite simple and straightforward. Remember your Creator before it's too late, while you still can. Remember Him in your youth, and remember Him before you die, because life is a gift. Your spirit is a gift. And Solomon just told us where it came from. The spirit will return to God who gave it. It came from God who gave it. And it will return to him who, as we read a few verses ago, will bring us into judgment. The command here is worth noting. Remember. Remember. Remember your creator. This is a reminder to worship God. This is a reminder to give him thanks. This is a reminder to live life as though he was watching you. Because he is. And what will he see? Will he see an ungrateful, prideful wretch who takes all the blessings that he has for granted? Or will he see a humble man, a wise and upright man, a righteous man who has skill in his labor? Kindness in his heart and gratitude on his lips. Be sure it matters because all this is vanity. It's temporary. Which brings me to one more consideration. Isn't Solomon starting to sound a little down in the mouth? This exhortation to remember God while you still can has a little bit of a pessimistic turn to it, doesn't it? Solomon's portrayal of old age certainly isn't flattering, but it is important because aging isn't normally something people look forward to. Remember, the preacher was writing this book towards the end of his long life. He's writing from experience. Death is a reality, and it comes upon us all. Solomon was staring his own in the face. He wasn't hiding from it. He wasn't ashamed of it. He was honest about it. He knew weakness, and he knew the frailty of old age and the difficulty of it. The glory of this passage is that it doesn't pull any punches. The joy and rejoicing that the preacher has been commanding is not shallow or ignorant. He doesn't stop commanding us to be rejoicing and to be joyful. This joy is a deep-seated, powerful joy that is powered by faith in a sovereign and beneficent God. A God who's good and who loves us and wants our blessing. So why did Solomon next go to conclude where he started? In vanity, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. This vanity is not a faithless vanity. It is not an emptiness or a meaninglessness. This vanity is the glory of life under the sun. God 
has created. And God has ordained all this. And yet, because it is yet to be perfected, there's more to do. There's always more to do. The cycles continue to go on. The endless cycles are endless. They're gloriously perpetual because God is working in the world. He hasn't given up on his creation. He's rebuilding it. He's renewing it. He is recreating it every day. Every day the sun comes back up. Every day the moon comes back up. Every year he throws away the snow that he made that winter. And replaces it with sun and sweat. And every fall he knocks down the leaves off the trees to die and become dirt. And every generation a new crop of men makes their mark on the world. And an old one goes to their graves. Yes, death is a reality. And death makes life vain. But it is God's grace that we die. Because we are sinners. Because we are sinners. Life on the earth, while beautiful and good and to be received with gratitude and enjoyment, is filled with pain and suffering mixed in with all the good. Death makes the suffering that we experience here bearable. It means that there's a finish line. There's an end to it all. That once we reach that finish line, it means the suffering, which Solomon has just so poetically and poignantly described for us, the suffering is over for the righteous when they die. The Spirit returns to God who gave it. Praise God that this is all vanity. Remember that this is nothing, and we are nothing. And God is everything. Remember your Creator. And in doing so, that you remember your place. You remember who you are. You remember where you belong. You are here in God's world. Your place is here. Enjoy the vanity. Enjoy it. God gave it to you. It's a gift. He wants you to enjoy it. And remember, so you remember your place, and remember your Creator. Because He is the only something in all this nothing. He is the one that makes all of this something for us to enjoy. It's vanity? Yes. Is it for us? Yes. Seize it. Enjoy it. And because God is working in the vanity, because God is shepherding the wind, we can rejoice. We don't need to sweat the details. We don't need to worry about our futures because we don't have any control of them. God has given life, God has given work, and he's given us the power to enjoy them. The wisdom that Solomon expounds is a resounding command to rejoice and enjoy and embrace the vanity. And Solomon lived it. He walked to the talk. He lived it. Here he was at the end of his long life, the, the, the wisest man who ever lived. And he embraced the vanity. He lived life. When you read the accounts of Solomon's life, his enjoyment of the good things of the earth is, is just astounding. God gave him so much blessing. And he embraced it. He embraced life. 
Solomon gives us wisdom. He tells us to embrace life like he did. Work hard and work with skill. Be careful with your words. Be generous and kind to the needy. Rejoice in your strength and in your youth. And remember your creator while you still can. But in all your embracing, hold on to the stuff loosely. Remember it's vanity. But hold on to him who gave it with tenacity. Hold on to God and never let go. As I've been preaching through Ecclesiastes, I've frequently turned to the New Testament. Because the wisdom in Solomon, like the wisdom in Proverbs, is is enigma. It's, 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 it's a problem. It's something that needs to be worked through. And then in the New Testament, it's frequently explained in greater detail and clarity. I've said this before, but in the Christian era, we have been given greater clarity and greater revelation. In Christ, God has stooped down to our level to reveal to us exactly how He's working in this world. How this life is vain and how that there is life after death. We need to hold on to Christ. Jesus is the revelation of who God is. Jesus showed us how to be wise. He confounded the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus showed us how to show generosity to the needy and the outcasts and healed the sick and the lame and he fed the poor and the hungry. Jesus showed us how to suffer and see the vanity of this life for what it is. He went to the cross, but he did it for the joy that was set before him. Jesus was God in the flesh, and he showed us what godliness is. But more than that, he overcame death and showed us how to have hope for the same. Which is why Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So yes, we still die, but in Christ our life is not vain and our death is not to be feared. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let us pray. The sermon this morning, Solomon commanded us to remember our Creator while there is still time. This sense of urgency is something that is regularly portrayed in the New Testament. And the reason it is true is because of the vanity of this life. The only thing that doesn't change under the sun is that everything changes. We need to remember God and be thankful to Him now, today, because we don't know the future. But what we do know is that God is there. And we can know Him by faith. In Hebrews 11, Paul gives us a drum roll of the faithful and the witness that they have through the history of the Scriptures. But at the very beginning of the next chapter, he urges us into this immediacy of the need to live well. We are indeed running a race. And God, in His sovereignty, has put us in the path we are on.
We simply need to engage. Engage in life. Embrace it. Love God and love your neighbor. And look to Jesus because our faith is from him and he is our example. And we have his spirit. And we have the promise that he who has begun a good work in us is faithful and will complete it. And he doesn't leave us alone, but gives us a comforter and support in the work he calls us to. Moreover, he places us in community with his people, the church. And he reminds us every week to renew covenant and to rest on him and his nourishment for our strength in this meal. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.